Well, welcome back to another edition of ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce in Sydney. And a big bonjour, Saba, to Christy Doran, joining us from Paris, now entrenched in the French capital, mate. Um, welcome to you. Uh, take us through the past week or so, or give us a sense of um, how Paris is building up for this Rugby World Cup. Bonjour, Zava. <laughs> Sam, glad to join you, mate. And I can tell you, yesterday was, uh, and we're talking Monday recording this, but uh, Sunday, an unusual kind of kickoff for a, for a test match like we experienced over the weekend, generally on a Saturday. But yesterday, there's 80,000 at the Stade de France, and it's all happening, and people, and, and it's, and it's uh, there's people everywhere. 80,000 is a lot of people, but... A day kickoff, afternoon kickoff, a good hour before the match got underway. It's <clears throat> there, there's sixty thousand already in there, and there was a real buzz and lively atmosphere. You, you know, the the crowd predominantly dressed in and wearing blue, um, and it was just a, a a phenomenal kind of start where you get the feeling that the party is just starting. Like it was it was it was right from go to woe when France led the match. Uh, scored the opening try inside the opening 10 minutes and, and they never looked back. And a couple of beautiful tries from David Pinot at the end to really ensure that it was that party atmosphere for the French. But, yeah, great atmosphere. Um, and Australia got a, a little bit of a taste to, to uh, about what to expect to come because they're going to be playing their first World Cup game against Georgia there, of course, in, in a couple of weeks' time. They certainly are, and we're very much on the countdown to that. We'll come to uh, the weekend's uh, fixtures, starting with the Wallabies in France shortly. But um, what about Paris in general, mate? It's not a city. Um, plenty of people who listen to this pod might have been there. Others, perhaps not. It's not a city that kind of embraces sport, say, perhaps like a, compare it to a Melbourne or um, even London with all the football teams or um, Barcelona or any of these places. I mean, Parisians, there. They're a bit of a unique breed. They're certainly passionate about their city, but they're passionate at sitting in bistros and eating and from what I would call smoking. I don't know if the law, the smoking laws have changed, mate. Can you still sit on the uh, on the path and enjoy a few drags while having a uh, the chicken corner bleu? I was asked by Tom Decent when we were walking to the ground yesterday, how many uh, how many cigarettes do you think that we would have had by the end of it, even though we don't? And, and I reckon a couple of packs. There, there's cigarettes everywhere, but... Oh, look, I can manage it. I don't smoke, but I can manage it. I'm sure some wouldn't. But you're right. It is a, I mean, like Paris is, it's it's not as the world's biggest city, but it's, you know, the metro system makes it very accessible to get around. Would I say that you're seeing signs and billboards with advertising the World Cup? But no, I don't necessarily think you would not know that it's right upon us. But if you speak to the people of uh, locals, in cafes or bars, everyone knows that the Rugby World Cup's about to start, and um, and that's exciting because you're saying, and I just had some breakfast the morning after the game, and there's a bloke down there in an All Blacks jersey, and yesterday, of course, there was the people walking the streets with their with their French kit on as well. So I think you are starting to see it. It's a lovely time of year. It's only a bit cooler today and overcast, but it is a light, nice time of year. End of April, uh, oh, sorry, end of August. Um, there end of end of summer, but it's spring in in Paris. Generally speaking, it's a gorgeous time of year. So, yeah, anyone coming over is going to really enjoy themselves. And and uh, I felt very safe right throughout. I know there was a couple of protests on the weekend, but um, that's a, a positive thing because we know that there were some uh, kind of ugly scenes, I suppose, over the last couple of months. Um, a bit of unrest, but we know that you know the rugby is going to really i think bring a light and you look at the newspapers at the moment and 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 rugby's featuring prominently in them as well so yeah it's 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 less than a fortnight away certainly is uh, and you're off down to i think saint etienne this week so probably get a a bit of a feeling of um, exactly how things are building down there leon i'm um, right in the heart of france and a real quite a different city to paris so i'd be interested to get a little bit of feedback before i see you in paris on wednesday Next week, um, righto, mate, 41-17 on Sunday night, um, France over Australia. And it's a difficult game to reflect on this one. I don't know whether you've had a chance to to watch it back, potentially not given, I think you had a late one there last night at the stadium. 
and maybe a couple of glasses of rosé afterwards. Um, but um, in the, it was the middle of the night here. The alarm went off at one forty. It probably didn't need it to be honest last night. But up I, up I got and and settled in. And um, I must admit, I haven't had the chance to to watch it back. But but clearly, the big takeaway from the first half, and it was something that you and I outlined when the squad was named uh, over two weeks ago now in in Darwin, around the concerns of goal kicking. And they certainly revealed themselves again, or reared their head, if you like, um, yesterday, uh, 16-5 at halftime. But there were eight points left out there by Carter Gordon. Now, we know this kid's at the start of his test career. Um, he's probably going to be a very good test player in the years to come. But he's been lumped with this responsibility when potentially um, Quade Cooper could have been as a backup. We know how well he's been kicking the ball in recent times. Yesterday at halftime, as I said, 16-5 at the break. It could have been 16-13, and that's a totally different ball game at halftime. Uh, I'm not saying that he would have kicked all those other ones, but to be 0-3 uh, in that first half, and I think finish one from five for the match, as opposed to, to Ramos, who just steps up, Thomas Ramos, and, and slots them over, hit the post on one occasion, and maybe had one later miss. But um, that was just the big difference in that first half. Yeah, exactly. And, and and test footy, it's all about pressure, isn't it? They all talk about scoreboard pressure, and that and they're the great unknowns because you don't actually know would the Wallabies have been able to make a, a stronger fist of it? Would they have perhaps been able to come away with a win? You, you don't know. The hypotheticals, the end scoreline suggests that we we're hammered, and and in many respects, we probably were, particularly in that second half when it got a bit looser, and and France spread the ball and they managed to find acres of space, uh, the Wallabies defence kind of struggling and whether or not that's a bit of a work rate issue with some of the forwards not coming around the corner quickly enough from set pieces or rolling malls. And then you've got uh, a brand new centres combination jamming and, and and it didn't work. But there were, and you know, you're right to, to highlight um, the struggles from Carter Gordon there because it's all about setting the tempo and there was a, a missed opportunity within the first couple of minutes of the game where Carter Gordon misses it. I don't think by, and, and I couldn't quite tell from sitting on the halfway line, you're not behind the post or anything, but it, it didn't look like he missed by that much. But, it wasn't far away. Uh, no, and, and but, it, but the amount of confidence that he would have been able to get if he starts to, to bang those ones over and and very quickly he gets targeted as well in defense see jonathan downsy twice inside the first 10 minutes targeting first time i think it was off a off a line out and then the second time five meters out it was so smart from france rather than going a, a rolling more which is probably the expectations to settle things down quick ball off the top straight to dante straight over gordon and, and hanging mark no one need to ask you can't bring him down and I just saw that they were the, the rugby smarts on show and display and the accuracy that France displayed, particularly in that second half yesterday, was chalk and cheese compared to the Wallabies where they, were, where they weren't quite there. They had so much territory. 61% territory is a, is a huge amount. Um, 53% possession. We know that those stats don't always uh, uh, correlate to wins or anything but uh, in, in rugby union, but the amount of time that the Wallabies had and spent inside the opposition 22 or from about the 30 metre mark, they needed to come away with more points in the five than they did in the first half. And uh, some great chances. I did like what we saw, some of the, the short side play um, from heavily involved with Suli Bunavalu, who had his best game uh, by a country mile. The two wingers within Noanganiwasi were, were threatening, showed their athleticism, so there are a couple of the big takeaways. Tupo, um, it was disciplined, but great at the scrum. We saw Bell take another step forward. Skelton carried well. Um, so there were some things, but then we get it at, right at the end when we speak to Tanyella Tupo, Tom Deason, and I went, and yeah, this is a good hour after the game, and, and Tanyella comes out, and he's kind of smiling, and you're a bit like, well, what are you smiling about halfway through the interview? You've just been smashed. Well, he kind of lets the genie, the cat out of the bag rather by suggesting that they've held things back and that the game plan that they brought and showed and offered against the French will be completely different to what they used throughout the World Cup and whether or not it's at the start of the World Cup or a World Cup quarterfinal and semi-final when you need to play your best footy and bring out something that maybe you haven't before if that comes to fruition who knows but it's interesting when 
you know, Eddie Jones is the master planner, generally speaking, at World Cups. Are we expecting more from this Wallabies side? Are we expecting anything, given that they're 0-5? I think there's a lot of people out there thinking they're going to be struggling to get out of Pool C, right, to, to start with, and um, particularly given what we saw from Fiji at Twickenham on Saturday afternoon, which was um, just a, an incredible performance from Pacific Islanders uh, and coach Simon Rowley deserves a lot of credit for the way he's brought that squad together, the blend of draw players with the quality and X factor coming out of Europe. He's got a really potent mix and they're now the number, the highest ranked team uh, in Pool C uh, going into this tournament, which is uh, extraordinary to think about um, and sets the stage for just a blockbuster first week because it's Fiji and Wales on that Sunday night and, and Wales, sorry, Fiji and Australia the following Sunday. So, um, Lots to look forward to there and a few nerves, no doubt, as well for those who will be getting up early in the morning back in Australia. But some good points there, mate, around um, just what they did and perhaps what they didn't do so well. The scrum, I don't think that too many times Australia would have been to Stade de France and come away with scrum dominance. Um, certainly that was pleasing. Taniela Tupu, as you mentioned, and uh, he looked fit. He didn't show any signs around that rib injury. I don't know whether he mentioned that talking to you and Tom post-match. Yeah, he, he said he was right, just trying to find his lungs, which is fair enough. It would, like, another thing to add to that, the Wallabies barely used their bench, uh, and it took about the 70th minute mark before all the forwards and players started to come on. But you think about it, um, Tupo, I think, got through uh, 67 minutes, Angus Bell got through 70 minutes. Uh, you know, uh, Richie Arnold, I think, was the first for, uh, player replaced after about the 62nd minute mark when when Rob Leota came on, and I thought he injected a little bit of physicality uh, into the game, a couple of good touches. But that was interesting itself, that the Wallabies, clearly, Eddie Jones has been flogging this side and decided, you know what, they haven't played in three weeks. They're not going to play for another two weeks. Probably good to get some ring rust out of there, um, which was in stark contrast to Fabian Galtier, who you managed his bench, uh, brought on about five players, probably around that 50-odd 50, 50 minute mark. So... Yeah, just interesting to see how everyone's uh, tournament preparations are going. Another point, another positive, I guess, to take from the Wallabies was the three tries they did score, they kind of scored in three different fashions. The first was uh, from a static rolling ball, which has become a big issue. They're just not making any yards with the line-out drive from close range at all. That's, I think, probably five tests in a row where you would say they've absolutely done no damage from close range, um, they're going to have to have a rethink there. I'm not sure what changes they can make in the next two weeks and beyond to turn that around. But the play that they worked off that really well, um, some beautiful crisp passes, uh, the the one from uh, Andrew Kellaway in particular under pressure to hit Norman Itawasi, who, who gassed them to the corner. Um, the second one, which they got that really nice roll on, um, that, that short side play that you mentioned with, I think, Tate McDermott going back to Angus Bell twice. In the tram tracks there, the kick through for Noangani um, Duasi, who doesn't gather it cleanly, but does enough to win back possession for the Wallabies. Um, and then Fraser McWright, who had another strong game, charges through the middle of a backpedalling French defence. And and then the kick again for Sully Vinavala, who you mentioned as well earlier, um, having his best game. And a lot of that was because they, they got him involved, didn't they? But he also went looking for work at the same time. It's a bit of a roving licence that may have left them um, a little bit, uh, a little bit um, lacking out in the wider channels defensively off off turnover ball, and we saw Pinot's second try. There was a horrible misread there um, from the three players out wide when he before he chipped over the top. But three tries in three different ways. It was just the little bits in between that sort of left a little bit to be desired, to be desired rather. But this is a team that's starting to look like it's got points or at least tries in it, but maybe not penalties and conversions, but one that can score points, uh, score tries, score five-pointers. You're, you're not wrong. And, I, and I've kind of bemoaned for a number of years the fact that we've got these, uh, Australia's got these huge physical specimens out wide, yet barely ever used Israel Folau in that capacity. I remember uh, Bernard Foley doing one or two lovely kicks, a memorable one against Scotland in, in Sydney, but these guys are great in the air. Why aren't we using them? And we're, we're seeing that a little bit more at the moment. We know Noanganetuasi is just about the best in the world at, uh, in the air at the moment. He's, he's, he's brilliant from kick restarts. I know he gave away one penalty yesterday, but 
that's a real area of strength and just the smarts there from Sullivan Avalo, like just a little shoulder when he's under the ball, completely legal. Uh, it's the most simple try almost in the end. And and a nice touch there from Isaac Pines, Lele Dewasa. Um, that's what you want to see. A guy is coming on, um, de- debutant. Uh, first few involvements are really positive ones. But you're right to, to say that, yes, there is some positives. But you think about, um, uh, you think about Melbourne, Early opportunities where Carter Gordon misses a penalty from about 30 metres out. Um, we know in Dunedin he missed that one from about 40 metres out. Uh, those sorts of things are going to prove extraordinarily costly if they don't get it right at a World Cup because you can't. And I said it to Eddie Jones yesterday. I said, World Cups are generally won by sharpshooters. Uh, what's going on there? What can be done? He said, yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right, but we've got to back the young guys and we're where we are. And he's going to continue to get better. Those that I speak to believe he's got a pretty good kicking technique. It's just about the fact that he hasn't played that much, has he? He hasn't kicked that much. He was behind Reese Hodge at the Rebels from a kicking capacity this year, but he also had some niggly groin and um, uh, hip flexor complaints, which meant that he didn't quite get the reps in that you would usually do throughout a training block of about 10 weeks in the middle of the season there. So that's a long time when you was apparently only really kicking off his left foot. So... You would expect him to get better. Huge stage, 80,000, one of the biggest crowds he's played in front of him. Of course, Melbourne, there was, there was 84,000. But you'd prefer him to have a couple of these hiccups. Maybe if they're going to have, you know, if they're going to happen, hopefully they get out of the way. And he's a confident kid. And from one understanding of, I was told by someone that Carter Gordon, well before Quade Cooper was left out, was saying that, I'm results driven and he thought that, that Quade Cooper was a bit process driven, a bit too process driven. And Carter's a confident kid. He, he will know that he's um he's got to get it right. And it was hilarious. Taniella Tubu actually apparently he said to him, uh, and whether or not they're firmly tongue in cheek, but he, he goes up to Carter at some stage apparently throughout the game and goes, If you want me to kick, I can kick <laughs> And well, I think it's a it's a it's a nice moment, hopefully, where take the pressure. You, know, you have a bit of a laugh, yeah, and 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 um, who knows, maybe it had the reverse effect, but um, uh, a good moment of joy, um, a moment of of laughter there from Taniella Tupo, despite a tough afternoon. What about the French? Then it just felt that they had a level or two extra on the Wallabies in this game, or. They had the, uh, sorry, the Le Petit General, uh, Antoine Dupont, who we do know has a couple of extra levels just just about compared with everyone else on the planet. His quick tap really ignited that team after the second, uh, after the Wallabies sort of enjoyed a bit of territorial dominance there early in the second. Um, from that penalty, he puts uh, Jalabert away. Um, and then the couple of kicks that he laid on, first to Villiers and then back across to the other side, for Pinot's first try, I, I mean, Australian fans will be aware of him, perhaps not seen a lot of what he does in the top 14, uh, played last year, it was pretty underwhelming in that narrow win and over the Wallabies last year who, who kind of contained him pretty well alongside Roman Intermac, but got a glimpse around just what he means to this team, what he can do um, attacking-wise, uh, his range of skills, the kicks off both feet, the vision, um, the the daring, if you like, to back himself and go. Um, they I don't think they'd be wrapped with that performance, the hosts, but um, to come away with a 41-17 win, they, they've clearly got to be pretty happy and, and knowing that they can play better um, and knowing that they've got that X factor in their team must be a wonderful confidence to Fabian Galti and, and the rest of the squad. Yeah, I, I made the comment to someone afterwards um, when we were down at the mix zone and the French were disappointed with how they played and, and 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 particularly the first half and it's funny because they're leading 16-5 but I said to someone oh that says a little bit about the mindset since the respective sides uh, and the accountability uh the drive for excellence that a team that has barely lost in a few years is knows that the standards weren't quite there at particular times and Missed a couple of missed opportunities defensively. They're probably exposed a little bit at times by the Wallabies in the first half. But you're right to point out to Pont, wow, that was just a marvellous game. And that second half particularly where 
Uh, the crossfield kick, I think, to to, to Penno for his, his first try was just perfect. And you thought, oh, has he overcooked that? No, 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 he hasn't. That was just inch perfect. And it, you, you saw the height of the kick, and that was in stark contrast to Carter Gordon's earlier effort when he looked for Budavalu and about five metres yep. too short. There was a lot of um, elevation on, on Gordon's kick for, for DuPont. It wouldn't have gone more than four or five metres in a height. It was just perfect. And and it was just simple. He made it look easy. And, yeah, the pace that he brought, that break that you spoke about, and maybe we can touch upon it now just quickly, it's, I, was, I thought that Bunavalu was desperately unfortunate to be shown a yellow card there. I know that he yet probably ended up losing his feet and getting on the other side. But at that point in time, I think the Wallabies had driven over the top and well and truly won the ball, I thought. They, they were the dominant um, force at that breakdown, for sure. They had numbers there, as I th- as you say. I think they're probably two-thirds of the way past the ball. He loses his feet and gets pinned. I, I mean, had there been a succession of penalties in the lead-up to that and France had been entrenched inside the Wallabies 22 for a period of time, then I could understand. But to go straight away like that, it wasn't as if they were going to score off the next phase because that wasn't, as you mentioned, a dominant breakdown for them at all they were slightly isolated the Wallabies had numbers there and even if they did get the ball back it wasn't going to be a quick shift to the other side of the field and, and five points in the corner so I thought Luke Pearce had a pretty good game on the whole but uh, that was a, uh, a poor decision in my mind as well yeah and uh, that that was probably the game where uh, the moment where the game was very much wrapped up because at that time, I think uh, Ramos had missed an early penalty in the second half. The Wallabies had dominated the territory in possession and not come away with anything for the next 10 minutes. And then France get the uh, the extra man. They take three, and then they score a try moments later as well. So little things, once again, a yellow card. Uh, we saw, I think the penalty count was 14-12 in the end, and that probably was a little bit... Um, uh, it probably flattered the Wallabies, I'd say, because in that first half, especially, there was a few moments of just really clumsy, ill-discipline, and and the picky backing was was what was most disappointing about that because you saw Super going off his feet once um, and, and playing the hand, uh, ball at the ruck. Uh, then there was another penalty immediately after, and, and at one point in time, I think it was three penalties back to back to back, and and you just can't do that. So. That's an area we know that the Wallabies, their best game of the season thus far has been against the All Blacks and Dunedin. It was probably the first time in a long time that they considered less than 10 penalties. And and that 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 is just a, a number you circle and highlight and go, guys, this is the difference between winning and losing here. You're giving yourself a chance and not. And at the moment, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And more accountability. We spoke about that. And I mentioned that word before. This is the accountability. And... Not having that and allowing an opposition team as good as France to just roll over the score. They didn't play much rugby yet. They still managed to win and, and be up at 16-5 and should have been up 19-5 after 44 minutes. So there, there are a couple of the huge issues. Oh, you, you pointed out earlier the rolling ball. That is a concern. General, generally, um, I think they've been good between the two 22s in, at the mall. But inside that 22, they've been poor. Uh, no pay whatsoever and a penny for the thoughts of Dan McKellar, who's that was his bread and butter for a long, long time. And we saw a bit of pay there with the Wallabies last year. He's just across the English Channel now and clearly he's uh, doing things with Leicester. But oh, you'd love just to be able to invite him into a couple of sessions to see what's going right or wrong there. Well, given it was such a strength, first under check, um, you think back to David Pocock was usually uh, the driver of that mall. I, I remember the games um, against Fiji actually at, at Millennium Stadium. Of course, this is the, the third straight time the Wallabies will play Fiji and four out of five, I think, um, in the pool stage of a World Cup. So they're opposition that know each other well come World Cup time. Um, they did it again in the World Cup final against New Zealand, I think, after Ben Smith was, was sin-bin there for a lifting tackle in 2015. And then you think about beyond that, um, Palau Fainga kind of takes over and they use that Brumbies drive, that McKellar, um, had built so well in Canberra, I kind of just replicated that, and and that had many a success at, at test level for Dave Rennie. Um, but now, as you say, they get inside that 10, 5-metre zone, and they just don't look like moving 
opposition defences backwards at all. And as we mentioned, the nice shift for, for Noel Wong and try um, came by, I guess, probably more the, the Christmas of the passing and perhaps a, a bad defensive read or two from, from the French. But um, it just, they're not doing any damage through that set piece, are they? And I guess the line out too on the whole was not disappointing. It was... I mean, what did they lose? Probably three lineouts and a couple more were reasonably scrappy. I, I just wonder whether they missed the the real energy and athleticism of Nick Frost getting up off the ground there a couple of times when they threw to to Tom Hooper at two or four, got uh, picked away there. And there was one key one, I think, that was probably in that sequence after um, Ramos had hit the post early in the second half. Then the Wallabies got the possession and territory and got a bit of a roll on. And that was the opportunity to get back into the match. And I think one of those five meter lineouts was was picked off uh, by a French yeah. jumper. I'm not sure who it was, but that was probably the other big concern, wasn't it? Because you think that Parecki's lineout throwing on the whole has been pretty good um, throughout this campaign so far. So to see it um, on the weekends go the other way wasn't wasn't ideal timing. Yeah, but I do think you need to. Uh, you look at any international side at the moment, and generally speaking, if you're up a good, good department, there's going to be two or three lineouts that are really strongly contested. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom in that area, but the, the law is, is an issue. Yeah, Tom Hooper was beaten at the front in that five-metre lineout, and then Richie Arnold was uh, beaten in about the middle of, middle, uh, of the throw as well. So... Um, yeah, but they were back-to-back lineouts once again, and it allowed France to piggy bay their way there back up the field, and then eventually turn, you know, turn the screws on the Wallabies. So, some, and today is the final cutoff uh, with the squads. Um, has to be in by the twenty-eighth. So the official squad. Um, Eddie Jones indicated yesterday that there was very, it was very unlikely for any any movement. Um, Pone Farmacilli, I believe, will miss the first match uh, against Georgia. He's, he's got a calf injury at the moment. That's why he didn't feature yesterday against France. It's kind of been kept under wraps a little bit. Uh, but once again, it's only a minor at this point in time, a three to four week injury, and he's kind of halfway through that period now, or he's a week into that at the moment. Uh, James Slibble was wearing a, a moon boot on Thursday or Friday uh, around the, the team hotel, but he was in good spirits and just... Yeah, I just thought, oh, it's more prevention than anything. And you do see that from time to time. But that's two of your six props. Uh, so you they better make sure that no one goes down over the next couple of weeks because Eddie Jay has indicated that he's going to have a couple more tough sessions and that guys are just holding on. Uh, Andrew Callaway came off halfway, well, sorry, about the very late in the game, but probably midway through the second half, got some strapping around his his elbow or his bicep, we weren't quite able to, to determine w- what that was. But I don't think there'll be necessarily any changes. The good thing is that there's about 15 guys that Australian that are going to be across the English Channel playing for the Barbarians and that if the moment comes where he needs to pull the trigger and make a change, he, he doesn't have to look very far, does he, to be able to call up someone. And, of course, the vast majority of those guys played for Australia Ray on the weekend uh, a day earlier. And a night earlier down in Massey uh, in the southwest of Paris. Pretty scrappy old win that one in the end, 30 to 17 over Portugal, who the Wallabies will play in their final pool match. And at that point in time, you'd like to think that the Wallabies have booked their, their spot in the quarterfinals, but points differential could be a very interesting one. Portugal were open, expansive, tried to play with real tempo when they got the ball, but You'd imagine that they're you're not going to lose too much sleep over them. They, the Wallabies should crush them up front, and and yes, the Portugal's got a pretty good back row and and not a bad uh, fullback too. But yeah, they they won't be causing too many upsets. I wouldn't wouldn't imagine. But from an Australian A perspective, I reckon a couple of guys missed an opportunity or two. I thought Lonigan's pass still remains first class, but. There was a moment midway through the first half where he got intercepted and went for a went for a, a little snipe to score a try on the opposition line. Uh, tried to, I think, pop pass it or pass back on the inside. Got intercepted. It was a length of the field, coast-to-coast try. And that's in front of Eddie Jones and his entire coaching staff and summed up the frustrations of that first half where the Wallabies should have been up probably 30-0. Uh, yet two... Uh, I don't think they the 
the Portuguese had one phase basically in the opposition half, yet led 14-12 after two kind of one first phase tries from a line out uh, from a scrum rather, and then then that coast to coast effort to talk about there. So Dylan Page played just, very well. Just out of interest, man, who was doing the goal kicking? Yeah, Ryan Lonegan. He missed two. I think his first really was was hit the post and then one just wide. Um, but he's a he's a goal kicker, isn't he? And he's generally a guy that kicks around that eighty percent mark. Um, was probably kicking even better a year or two before that. Um, couple of foot issues, I think, which which meant he might have just changed one or two things with his kicking. But yeah, Peach, Swinton, Hannigan, I think, were the three obvious standouts. And then when I kind of moved to town, was probably a bit better in that area because he was probably exposed a little bit defensively in that midfield um, partnership there alongside Dungaboon. He fell off two or three tackles. And and um, as I say, that's in front of Betty Jones. And he would have been watching those and marking those sorts of things down. So, yeah, it's a... It's an interesting kind of next couple of days where the Wallabies don't really do too much. They're going to be doing a couple of training sessions and then they go down to St. Eddie and in, in, I think probably Wednesday or Thursday, uh, there's going to be a welcoming kind of ceremony and they kind of get immersed in the community down there. And then before you know it, they're back in Paris for that first game against Georgia when you will be uh, joining too. Can't wait, mate. Yeah, very much on the countdown. A few bits and pieces and loose ends to tie up, but... Uh... I'm starting to get uh, get the tingles for it as we speak. Um, all right, mate, that's pretty good for the Australian action over the weekend. Um, we go back to Friday night then, a sold-out Twickenham, um, an incredible uh, amount of Kiwis and more so South Africans come out of the woodwork in London to watch this blockbuster clash. Um, can understand why, because they, you're not going to get too many opportunities to see a one-off test like this on, on neutral turf. And we know how many expats of, of both countries there are in, in London. So so no surprise that it was well attended. Um, but, geez, didn't we get a statement performance from the Springboks? Um, they've been my tip since the last World Cup, purely because they play World Cup rugby. But I think they've got another dimension to them this time. This is a powerful, confident, um, how else can you put it? Uh, just a, a team that's got um, all bases covered uh, at this World Cup, um, even without Andre Pollard and and um, Lucanio Am and um, whoever the other one that's uh, Lou Diego, and, and maybe there would you know um, Jackson Inaba might drop a, a surprise in the next few hours, and we'll we'll keep abreast of your Twitter feed to see if that does happen. But um, as I said, this was a statement performance. Uh, against the All Blacks, 35-7, um, and could have been 50-7, to really, couldn't it? The way, uh, I think there was one try to Kanan, well, there was one try to Kanan Moody, who made a seamless switch to, to number 13, and our friend John Goliath was highlighting the prowess of this youngster the other week when we spoke before the Pretoria test. Um, this, was, uh, this was a message from the Springboks that we're coming to win this thing, um, and uh, we've got f- few fears for any opposition that's lining up against us. Yeah, it was a statement, wasn't it? With a Stefan one, forwards, back, split on the bench. But I mean, if, if that's a statement of a surprise, I don't know what else is. Um, they were they were very good. The All Blacks' discipline was was very poor. Uh, a red card in the end, a double yellow card to to Scott Barrett, and he's off. And uh, look, up against a side like the Springboks with the All Blacks, if you, if you if you're not on or you don't have 15 guys in the field, you get exposed, particularly for a long period like that. I I, I wouldn't read too much into it from an All Blacks perspective. They've, they've got some concerns around their second row. They're pretty light there with the moment with without a couple of guys, including Brady Retallick, who's, who's still going to miss one or two matches probably, uh, including that opening one against France to kick off the World Cup on on September 8. But um, let's not forget this. This is a, a warm up, so to speak. There wasn't a huge amount on the line. Um, the All Blacks would have. Well, the, the uh, Qatar Airways Cup was on the line, mate. That that cherished. Oh piece yeah, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. It, it was great to see that amount of advertising just pop through all the time, wasn't it? Too, but but um, I, I think in in the same way, and, and it depends whether or not you want to believe Eddie Jones or not, but. Eddie Jones, I think, has very much approached the last couple of months as as, a, as an extended uh, preseason, and you see Will Skelton dropping almost ten kilos since he returning to Australia. Like 
everyone's set up and their and their preparation would have been different, including the All Blacks. They're, they're not looking to peak right now. Um, it's a long time to the cup. They know that even if they lose the first game against France, which I don't, you know, that, that'll be a, a great game. Um, they're probably going to make it through to a quarterfinal. Who, who are they going to play? Obviously, it's going to be a tough one either against South Africa and Ireland or Scotland. Um, but this is a long, long campaign, and I, I, you can't write off any of these guys, despite how flat the All Blacks were, how poor they were. Um, one of the poorest results in New Zealand history, just about, you'd say. But but uh, you can't write them off. It's not often that an All Blacks back line with Rico Ioane plays a game and, and you really don't see Rico get the ball, at least beat someone on the outside, make a half break. I was wondering at times whether he was on the park um, there on, on Friday night. I just couldn't believe, I couldn't remember a game when he was uh, just a, a non-figure in the match whatsoever. Um, of course, the big talking point was was Scott Barrett. And, and this is... This is mind-boggling stuff from from this guy who is having the season of his life. All right, he's probably been the best player in New Zealand rugby, better than Mwanga. Um, of course, led the Crusaders to the title. Um, gave helped give Scott Robertson, Mwanga, and and Whitelock the ultimate send-off in Christchurch. Um, had shifted the conversation around. You know, can Scott Barrett break down this locking partnership between Retallick and Whitelock? Can they play him at six? Well, no, he's probably been the pick of them, so they had to pick him. And then you and think probably an All Blacks captain in waiting as well in the future, and and then you think back to four years ago in Perth and him dropping the shoulder into Michael Hooper, um, a straight red on that occasion. But the timing was is eerily similar. Not as it just because it's the, almost the same game four years ago, but the same point. It was just before halftime there in Perth. It was just before halftime on Friday night. And is it a brain explosion? I think back to, was it Dane Coles at the time four years ago? Might have said, oh, yes, yeah, Scooter's got a bit of that in his game. And, and maybe it's still in his game that it's just something flicks in his, in his brain or he loses, you know, gets fired up at, at something. And, and this, I feel like they might have a case to make here that the camera angles didn't show whether this was shoulder on head contact. I don't know whether you've seen something that tells you otherwise so far. I think they'll give this a red hot crack at getting off, but I can't believe just from a um, what made uh, what enforced Scott Barrett to to go with this play at this point in time on the eve of a World Cup when he's got history in this exact situation, it just absolutely blew me away. Yeah, it was clumsy, it was reckless, but I, I agree. I'm not sure what will the outcome will be for me. It was Owen Farrell's a couple of weeks ago, or Billy Bonapola. That they're cut and dry kind of cases. Agree. Yeah. Yep. This one, I'm not sure. We don't quite know the contact. I think there will be obviously some more cover angles that we probably haven't been able to have witness to just at the moment. But where that point of contact is, but it was just unnecessary because Max, it was it was Max, wasn't it? He, yep. he didn't have really any hands on the ball. He was just to the side. It was it was clumsy. You looked at Barrett and he knew it immediately and. He just looked like, oh dear, I've got that wrong. Swallow me up, please. Get me out of here. This isn't how it was supposed to go to plan. And um, it summed up, didn't it? The All Blacks' performance, not quite being there. And it couldn't. And I, if he misses a couple of weeks, that could have some more ramifications because you start stressing the wider squad. And, and, and they're the things that you. It just interferes with your planning because it can't. Things aren't. It's like if a player, um, if one player has a has a poor game, what's the what the wider ramifications on the rest of the squad or those around them? And and this is another case where now with the the All Blacks' second row and lock and depth really being stretched, oh, it's a, some big decisions now for Ian Foster about how he manages in his squad. And there's a significant drop-off there in class, isn't there, from Whitelock, Retallick and Barrett down to Tupuvai, who is a you know a young player on the rise, but um, certainly hasn't uh, found his feet at test level just yet um, on the back of injuries to, to Shannon Frizzell. And that freak injury to Tyrell Lomax as well, that, geez, it was a nasty cut. And uh, I think, I don't know who it was on, might have been Stevie Lenthal on, on social media. Do we still do the boot check? Does this happen in... Um, in the sheds before the players go out for their warm-up or between the warm-up and, 
and running out as you know the players all over the world do on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock or whatever, um, because that he's really sliced him, and I'm sure it was just a, a freak occurrence. But um, he's going to miss certainly. I think the the opening game against France, and and let's face it, that's from the All Blacks from there. Italy might put up a, a bit of a fight for half an hour or so, but um, they've got a fairly gentle, probably the gentlest run of the pools from there on. When you look across the other pools and. Well, even what Samoa did against Ireland on the weekend and have added another dimension to Pool D. So uh, they've got a bit of time to, to get their act together. Um, whether that's going to be a good thing coming back into a quarterfinal against either Ireland or South Africa or Scotland, we'll find out in the coming weeks. But um, yeah, certainly not the ideal preparation for Ian Foster. And um, I mean, Jackson, he did, he played it down. He said, look, we, we certainly we, will take this win. We're happy with the way we played. We're not going to get carried away as you would expect. But the 7-1 split, Christy, is this something we might see again during this tournament? I don't think any other nation in the world would be bold enough to take it on. And it was born out of a, an injury in the warm-up to Willie LaRue. And Nina explained it as we've kind of had this training management load and we'd flog the guys who weren't playing on Friday night. So we didn't want to bring one of those in um, at late notice um, and, and getting them potentially having to play, you know, 60, 70 minutes if there was an injury. But Geez, the way they replaced all seven forwards seven minutes into the second half there in almost an entirely new pack, the thrust, the energy, the physicality that they got out of those replacements. I mean, we know about the bomb squad, but could we see a, a seven-man bomb squad uh, perhaps in the quarterfinals or in either of these games against Scotland or Ireland? Um, it's no doubt it's, it's risky. And you think back to your question of Eddie Jones about the 6-2 split ahead of Argentina when the Wallabies did have some injuries and, and Len Ikatao was injured and it had to force Carter Gordon to number 12. Um, I don't think any, as I said, any other nation in the world would be bold enough to take it on but South Africa. But I've got a nagging feeling we haven't seen the last of it. Yeah, well, well, well cut. It's when you've got tournaments and now it's gone from 31 squad to 33. So there probably won't be as many kind of... Uh moments or, or or the necessity to do that like it might be in, in, in past world cuts but i'm not sure i, I don't know if you'll have that going forward too many times so i think that's a, another case of uh, preparation of of coaches and managers ensuring that their wider squad is getting um worked in in ways that you might not necessarily see or imagine by just the the guys that go on there like I think that's smart from 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 South Africa, but if that's a quarterfinal or a semifinal and you lose your ten or you lose whatever play it might be, and it really comes back to bite you in the backside, that's a that's a howler you've had. So I, I certainly hope Australia and Eddie Jones don't doesn't doesn't do anything like that. But he did he did joke at one point in time, didn't he? Oh, we want to do a seven and one yeah. you know, split, and and uh, yeah, well, we saw her against Argentina, it bit them in the backside. So I wouldn't be imagining they're going to be doing that, but. But 6-2 that the Wallabies did on the weekend too. Um, and Isaac Fines and Ben Donaldson there. Donaldson probably only really a 10-15. Uh, Carter Gordon had to push to 12 at one point in time uh, when, when Lala Kaifaketti went off uh, for a HIA check. So, yeah, like it's... oh The thing is, South Africa, you know what you're going to get from a defensive point of view. They're all going to be physically strong enough to withstand some of those things. I I just don't think that some sides like Australia can. You know, we saw all that with Carter Gordon kind of getting targeted. And we know Ben Donson throughout the Super Rugby season struggled in that defensive side of the game too. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm as optimistic about that as you, Bruce, with a 7-1 going forward. As I say, I don't think anyone else would attempt it bar South Africa, but I just feel if... You know, they saw an opportunity to to really uh, put the pressure on up front and go back to high balls and just throw these guys, these these gigantic humans that they've got coming out of their eyeballs in South Africa. Um, they might be the team to do it. But yes, an incredibly risky play. They got it all by with it on the weekends. Um, but who's to say that the next week they might not they might suffer three injuries in the back line and it's a you know as you said an absolute catastrophe. So we shall see, uh, mate. Right before we wrap up. Um, and we're going to come back for a wider World Cup pod preview um, later in the week. But um, remiss if we don't mention uh, or go into Fiji and England briefly here. As we said, an incredible win for Fiji, the first ever over England. Um, clearly at Twickenham as well, a bit like Argentina winning for the first time at Twickenham last year. Now that they've been beaten by Fiji at Twickenham as well. 
under Steve Borthwick. Um, look, this is a team that's in dire straits, isn't it, really? They've got problems all over the paddock. Um, I think they've gone backwards um, under Borthwick. Um, defensively, too, like Kevin Sinfield, he's brought in from Leicester. And um, the ease, particularly for that third try on Saturday night, the match sealer um, for... Fijian replacement, whose name I won't embarrass myself by trying to pronounce now when I haven't got it in front of me. Um, just the ease of that offload, the yards that they made through contact, and then the four English players who kind of just stood around and looked at each other when the offload came was was a glaring indictment on where this team is at. And I mean, a, a bit like Australia now in Pool C, they are absolutely no certainties to come out of Pool D. Yeah, correct. And and fortunately with the time zones, it was a comfortable viewing for, for, for me to watch that. And it was a slow-mo car crash. Like, and they started well, but you, the half-hour mark, Fiji had blown a couple of opportunities to really get back in. And I think it was 8-3 at half-time. And, and he thought, wow, like Fiji, if they can score first, they're a real chance because England look a rabble at the moment. They, they don't have a clear... Uh, vision and direction about how they're wanting to play at the moment, I don't think. Um, passes aren't sticking. Uh, they look short of confidence. Um, and I think it was at the start of the year where we were talking about this and, and going, you know, Steve Walthwick, highly, highly respected assistant coach, obviously spent years under Eddie Jones. And, it, and, and, you know, success with Leicester, first year, go on to win the, the title, phenomenal job. But like Daryl Gibson, when he went to the Waratahs, uh, some assistant coaches don't necessarily transfer into phenomenal head coaches. And the pressure and the difference between club footy or domestic professional footy to international footy is, is stark. And we're, we're seeing some of that now happening at the moment. Eddie Jones often talks about it, you know, the, the the manager, the head coach having to be not only very clear with their identity, but having that helicopter kind of view of things uh, because it is, it's different. You don't, from a club perspective, you have them 30, 40 weeks of the year. From an international perspective, they come in at times and you've got to bring everyone together and get everyone on the same page. I even thought to begin with, the idea of having three tens in that squad who are out now, I think tens, or two of them at the very least, with George Ford, Marcus Smith, old Farrell, 10, 12, clearly. But there was too many chefs in the kitchen there. And every person wants to play and dominate and and and, and take charge. And just, without Farrell, I thought, okay, well, maybe that helps for just for the short term, but it, it didn't did it necessarily, and and Marcus Smith comes on a, a a beautiful try with combining with George Ford, but they 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 are struggling. But like Australia, very early a World Cup match hasn't been played yet. But um, yeah, you'd be concerned about them as to whether where are they going to finish prominently if they even get out of the, the pool stage. They might not. Japan's only won something like four Test matches since 2019. They they're struggling too. So. Um, we do have to tip our hats to, to Fiji though. I think they've won four out of five over the last two months. Um, and, uh, they know how they're playing. They're playing with a lot of confidence. They're well coached. Um, Brad Harris, uh, another Australian in there. Um, Derek Gibson, as we've already mentioned, Glenn Jackson's around it too. Um, Semi-Raj Raja, what about the physicality of his showing? I think he bumped off both uh, George Ford and Max Malins and just, yeah, he's playing with so much confidence and might. So they're going to be a threat. Um, the Wallabies will play them in their second match in Cincinnati, and, and that is going to be a huge, huge game. And you imagine that Fiji, they're playing Wales first up. Warren Gatlin was in the stands. Uh, wow, there's a lot of tension now brewing in, in that full C and the journalists, the watching public, everyone that's going to be there, it's going to be a gripping first couple of weeks. Yeah, as we as we said earlier, uh, the first seven days for, for Pool C is, is massive, isn't it? Um, and, and just to go back to the point earlier around the drawer, and, and certainly Simon Rowalu made that point in the post-match, didn't he, that um, we've really benefited from. Also gave World Rugby a shout-out, and, and that's not something we do often on these podcasts, so we better reflect that for... For Simon, um, saying that they've got the investment from World Rugby, the support of the, the Drua, 
the facilities, they're always wanting more resources, but they're, they're making the best of what we're doing, of what we've got rather. Um, but their progress in, in Super Rugby within two seasons, making the finals this year, winning five out of their six home games in Fiji. Um, and then also a nice line around, we, we've really kind of stripped it back on the other side and we want to reconnect with our people. You know, we've, you saw them running back to the Sand Hills, I think, early in their preparation, which started back in early July, went through the Pacific Nations Cup undefeated. Um, they've kind of got the best of both worlds, haven't they? That the actual iconic, you know, brand of Fiji and rugby and what makes them so special. And, and I guess everybody's second team, if you like, come World Cup times. And now they've got a bit of support, uh, money, resources, finances coming into the team as well. And that's going to be a potent mix. And they've been to the quarterfinals, of course, in 2007 in France, beating Wales last time around. Um, a, uh, an unforgettable final uh, game on the pool stage, I think it was on that occasion. So they've got all their, their two big games front-loaded this time around. Um, and that's going to be a, a mighty opening seven days to see how that unfolds. Oh yeah, I almost feel like I want to ask you a couple of quick predictions when before we uh, before we wrap up this one. But we'll save this, we'll save, save save that for the wider pod, mate. Let's let's not let's not go off just yet. We'll uh, we've got one more in us before kickoff. Well, wow, that's true. I think once again though, depth is going to be crucial. And if you look at a couple of the international sides and how they're faring and tracking, France, South Africa look like they're in rich health. Uh, some of the other sides look like they're hanging on a little bit more. And a couple of teams like Australia, their fortunes probably just depend on guys like Tanyel Tupo, Angus Bell being able to provide that uh, strength and muscle up front in the scrum, but certainly around the field too. But it's all ramping up and the, the clouds are starting to build in Paris at the moment over these uh, tops of the, the gorgeous uh, hotels and the architecture around here. But um, it's exciting and the, yeah, the anticipation is building all the time. Sure is, mate. Well, you you do the rosé research, uh, find a, a couple of nice drops, uh, and I'll see you just over seven days' time, uh, Wednesday afternoon. Um, of course, yeah, just uh, no games this weekend, and it'll only, you know, heighten expectation and, um, you know, the nerves and, and the excitement, rather, of, of what's to come. Um, so, mate, thanks for making time today. Uh, enjoy your Monday in Paris. Um you had your uh, croissant, uh, jambon, or fromage yet? Because I know you're, you're partial to a ham and cheese croissant. Very partial to, to a croissant. I, I didn't actually this morning, but I did get a quick espresso before jumping on um, the, the, the cup of post-match or post-work uh, beers last night. Just meant for a, a later uh, wake-up this morning, but oh, I might still say I was up well before 10 o'clock. So we, we, were, we were talking on a comms at 8.30. Anyway... <laughs> Great stuff, mate. Uh, enjoy your week. As I said, uh, looking forward to getting over there and joining you. And uh, thanks all again for listening. Uh, pumped to, to get up there and get underway next week. Uh, if you've got any thoughts in the meantime, give us a shout out across the various podcast platforms. Give us a review. Anything you want to touch on throughout the tournament, we're here. Uh, we're at your beck and call, so let us know. And um, yeah, we're on the Rugby World Cup. Cheers.